I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hey, it's good to hear the intro again, isn't it? It is Wednesday. Wait, it's it's not Tuesday. This breaks our streak of like 10 consecutive weeks posting on Tuesday. Well, that's disappointing, but it is still coming at you Wednesday, November 29th, 2017, the Wong Takes. Sorry for being late. Uh, just stuff happens. Anyway. Uh, big development. If you listen on the website or someplace that's not Apple Podcasts, which I'm not quite sure how. Oh, also Patreon through Patreon. Uh, if you are an Android user, the Wong Takes is coming to Google Play. Uh, I think I think the podcast is on Google Play Music right now. Uh, tell Android developers to make a separate podcast app. Highly recommended to boost their business and all. But anyway, the link for Google Play is on the website, uh, bit.ly slash thelongtakes. If you have any problems with that, just email me at thelongtakes at gmail.com. Thanks, and that is all for the announcements, so let's get right to the show. First of all, we're going to talk about some coaches that got fired from their jobs this week, specifically in college football. Uh, college coaches were fired at big schools, including at UCLA, which was Jim Mora. Mike Riley's out at Nebraska. Jim McElwain's out at Florida. Butch Jones out at Tennessee. Brett Bielema out at Arkansas. And multiple other coaches, many from Power 5 conferences, especially the SEC. And I think some of these moves where you've got coaches that have been at their jobs for, what, like five or six years in a football-hungry place like the SEC, and they've just hung at 500 or, or way below 500 in the conference, Obviously, I think they have to go. But when you have coaches that have maybe one or two bad years, like a guy like, say, Kevin Sumlin out of Texas A&M or a coach like Todd Graham at Arizona State, who, even though it's a, a not a well-known Power 5 school, it is a Power 5 school. Arizona State's in the Pac-12. And they, they had a winning season, and he gets fired. I don't like those moves, not just because you're firing a winning coach. Well, mostly because you're firing a winning coach. You don't get a chance to establish that culture because – Teams don't just start winning right away with, with good talent. I mean, it helps, of course. Like If you have an uber-talented guy like LeBron James, he's going to increase your win shares automatically. But if you have these little guys, the, the best you can do is establish a winning culture where teams understand that, that winning there is good. You see examples of a winning culture benefiting the entire team with guys like, say, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, where he started under Tom Brady for so long he knows what what winning feels like and his first pass is a 49er he throws a touchdown so if you're if you fire now back to the discussion of coaches where when you fire coaches like these guys who either have only had one or two bad years or maybe even had a good year and got fired they don't get a chance to establish that that culture of success that culture that you need to build a program that can last for years and years and years plus the turnaround at the college level where players are coming and going in four years it makes it even tougher to build this this culture of success. I keep saying that, but it's just something that's really important, especially at the college level, when you've got kids going in and out and they're easily, uh, you, can, you can press your beliefs onto them really easily. And they really enjoy that. That helps with recruiting. That helps with um, motivating your players. And it helps with everything. And the firing coaches might not help, too, for some of these teams that are at the bottom of Power 5 conferences, because what do you think you're going to gain from that? I mean, you, if you want to install a new coach that you think will help you win more, it's going to take time. It's not going to be immediate. And it's not like you're going to put in a new coach that immediately helps with recruiting because Power 5 schools, like the backbone of what makes a college team good is recruiting. And if you're a low-end Power 5 school, you're not going to get those recruits no matter what coach you have. So you might as well keep the same coach you have for consistency's sake, even through the bad years. 
I think some of this is on the fan bases too, because of course they are the ones that are clamoring like so and so must go. But I think what we forget also is that fans, they not only, they love winning, of course, that's what puts the butts in the seats, but also they like identity. Because even when you have teams like the Philadelphia 76ers of a few years ago, where the fans really got behind trust the process, and fans were still coming to the arena to watch these young guys play, So, and even though they weren't winning. So when you have an identity like that, when you have something that you can get a fan base to rally behind, that's also how you can, you can get those butts in the seats. And plus, when you develop an identity, it could lead to winning anyway. Like, we see the Sixers, I think they're over 500 this year. Like, Embiid's healthy, and they've gotten rid of some of the guys they didn't need, and now they have space for him to work. So this, this Sixers team is looking good, and they attracted a guy like J.J. Redick from Los Angeles. So that helps, too, is not only having the players that you need to succeed, but having the identity you need to succeed, and allowing your fan base to get into it by embracing all of that. Now, also, what I wanted to talk about was there were rumors of Coach Scott Frost, or there are rumors of Coach Scott Frost of UCF leaving the program, and he's been their head coach, uh, I'm not sure how long, but they've had an undefeated season so far, and they're probably headed for a big bowl game. I don't like this, because what I think should happen is that coaches at these mid-major schools where you're not like a Power 5 school, I think they should be incentivized to stay there, because... We've seen coaches like uh, P.J. Fleck at Western Michigan, who last year, after he got, had a really good season and got to the Cotton Bowl, went to Minnesota, which is a Power 5 school, which isn't going to pay him more money, therefore. But they're, he's not going to win as much. Like He's had a decent season this year by Minnesota's standards, but he hasn't had the same success that he had at Western Michigan. Now, it's the coach's decision to leave, of course, and th- there's no reason why we should limit their choice to leave. But I think that the NCAA should encourage these mid-majors or these coaches to stay at their mid-majors because it makes the whole landscape more competitive when you have, uh, when you maybe developing another powerful conference like the AAC or, I don't know, even the conference like the Big West where you, can, where you need to have coaches that will stay there, that won't be drawn to these big Power 5 schools. And I think a way you can do that is if the NCAA tries to give more money to these mid-major schools like uh, Western Michigan, like a UCF, like a USF, where you can say you can pay the coaches more. Now, that might be too much uh, uh, corporation interfering into into the money, but I like, for example, the NBA Supermax deals, where, where teams can pay more if they were the team that I think it's like held on to the player since they were drafted or something like that, where you're encouraging kit, people like Russell Westbrook at OKC to to stay where they are, and that way they can get paid more money. I think that that kind of system could almost work in the NCAA where you encourage guys like Scott Frost, like P.J. Fleck, to stay at their schools and really develop something that can last as opposed to just being a flash in the pan, being really good for a little bit, and then going and then just having the... and then moving on to a struggling Power 5 team. So that's my take on the coaches. Now let's get to the football itself. So wow, what a weekend in college football. College football week 13. Let's check out the scores from this weekend. And since we are recording on a Wednesday, the new rankings are out, but I will be using the old rankings for this little statement. Uh, Pitt shocked my at number two Miami 24 to 14, hurting their playoff stock a ton. We'll get more to that later. Number seven Georgia beat Georgia Tech 38 to seven. Uh, we'll get to the Iron Bowl later. Number five, Wisconsin beat Minnesota, thirty-one to nothing. Number four, Oklahoma beat West Virginia, fifty-nine to thirty-one. Number three, Clemson beat their rivals, number twenty-four, South Carolina, thirty-four to ten. Number eight, Notre Dame fell to number twenty-one, Stanford, ending their playoff hopes, thirty-eight to twenty. 
And I think those are all the major scores from this weekend. There weren't too many huge games, with the exception of Auburn beating Alabama, number I believe number six being number one, 26 to 14 at the time. Alabama's defense, man, this was tough to. It was it was weird to see because Alabama's defense they played well, but I noticed that they were kind of kept off balance the entire game by Auburn's no huddle offense, where you had Alabama trying to substitute guys and then Auburn just running misdirections and and they really couldn't get a hold on them the entire game, and. As far as on the offensive end for Alabama, Auburn's front four limited their run game significantly, so they were kind of one-dimensional at times. At times, And Alabama also made uncharacteristic mistakes at key moments in the game, like the failed snaps. Uh, there were a few failed snaps. One of them ended up uh, not counting because of a penalty. But it's just not something you usually see from an Alabama team, even on the road in a hostile environment like Auburn. So the results of this game, wow, it was, an, it was an interesting game. It wasn't too fun, per se. It wasn't as fun as, like, the kick six or, or punt, battle punt, or whatever. But it was a good game. And with it, with it Auburn now, who has been num- who's been ranked number two in the college football playoff rankings, has a chance to win and be in the playoff. And that's pretty remarkable, considering their two early losses uh, to Clemson and LSU, who are both good teams. And Clemson is now number one in the ranking. But you don't expect a two-loss team to make it into the playoff. We'll talk more about those ramifications later. For Alabama, it's more complicated, and we're going to talk about their situation. But what immediately from this game, they lose both not only the game, but they lose the tiebreaker to Auburn, which is rough because that means this game is was the last game that they will play before they get in the playoff, if they get in the playoff. Because now they don't have a chance to play in the SEC championship game because they lost the division. Plus, their strength of schedule is weak, so that's not good for their playoff hopes. So I really see only two reasons that they would get into the playoff. If they get some key losses, which we will talk about. Also, I've heard, seen this from analysts like Kirk Herbstreet who are just like, yeah, they're, they're Alabama. I mean, they're Bama. We know what they can do. We know what their defense, how ferocious that defense is. And they could be just one of the top best four teams in the committee or in the, in the country in the eyes of the committee, which isn't unheard of. Like, we've seen teams that haven't necessarily proven themselves get in the playoff just based on their pedigree and you that shouldn't happen but it might and Alabama is such a so dominant in the games that they do win it's like you can't really ignore that if you're the committee but by putting them at number five in the most recent college football playoff rankings they're saying okay Alabama you don't just have a cakewalk uh you have to have some luck to get in because you did lose a game and your strength of schedule is not that good without further ado now let's get to the championship game previews. First of all, let's go to the least consequential one, probably, is the Pac-12. Number 12, Stanford versus number 10, USC. I believe the only Friday college, uh, I mean, uh, conference championship game on the slate. There's no real playoff ramifications for this game. Both of them have at least two losses and don't have a really tough strength of schedule. And for USC, especially who's really the only one who has a chance in this game, Georgia and Ohio State and Auburn, of course, would probably be two lost teams, all two lost teams, potentially, that I would put ahead of USC. And this has been a good season for both teams, also for Stanford, because even though they've had three losses on the year, I believe they're 9-3, and three, they have wins over good teams, like the Washington Huskies, who are ranked, like the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, who they just recently beat, and by a decent margin, by 18. Some of those points were off of uh, rough turnovers from the Irish, but still, they're good wins. It's a good season that Stanford is building on. They continue to be ranked and be relevant uh, throughout the year. Now, as far as the games that have playoff ramifications, starting with the Big 12, number 11 TCU playing number 3 Oklahoma, and these are current rankings, by the way. This is an elimination game for Oklahoma. It's a win-and-end game for Oklahoma. 
because a loss would give them two, and they don't have the quality wins playing in the Big 12 that a team like Auburn has. And also a win would give them another quality wins. This is why they would make it into the playoff. And it might a win might even give them the number one seed because this is a really good TCU team. They were they were undefeated just a few weeks ago. And as far as them, it's a nice opportunity to get revenge on Oklahoma from two weeks ago because that's who knocked them out of the playoffs, giving them their second loss. And also there's some stuff with TCU and Baker Mayfield and all that jazz. So that's going to be an exciting one to see. Uh, next is the SEC, number six, Georgia, playing number two, Auburn. In my opinion, this is the best game of the weekend. Uh, it's probably a play-in game, and that's part of what makes it such a good one. If if Georgia wins there and if Auburn wins there in, of course. And Georgia, it's they really need this win because they never got a chance to play Alabama and try to bolster their resume that way. And their strength of schedule is not incredibly high as their best wins are, are Notre Dame, who just got beaten by Stanford, and Mississippi State, who's not exactly up there in the playoff hunt. And also, Georgia is going to really want this game emotionally because they want a chance to get back at Auburn after that blowout uh, in Jordan-Hare a few weeks ago. Now, the game will be played at a neutral field. I'm not quite sure where it is, but I think that gives the advantage to Auburn because their fans will travel, but so will Georgia's, but also Auburn has a better offense, so I think that'll help at a neutral site where the crowd is not as much of a factor as it usually is. Now, one more note about this game. Uh, seven out of the eight, last eight Iron Bowl winners have won the SEC, and a few of those have gone on to win the national championship. So Auburn really is coming in hot after beating Alabama and beating Georgia a few weeks prior. So they're going to be uh, ready to go. I think Georgia will have a tough time fighting with Auburn initially, but it's going to be a game that's kind of... They're good offenses, but I think this one's going to be one in the trenches like many of these SEC uh, title games are. Next is the ACC, number 7 Miami, taking on number 1 Clemson. Now, I think this is also another play-in game because both teams have one loss. Even though Clemson is number one, I don't think they get in with two losses. We saw uh, one loss drop Alabama from one to five this week. Miami, it's going to be interesting because their offense, they look really, really stagnant in this most recent game, losing or losing 24 to 14 and only scoring 14 points against, although it's a tough division, uh, conference opponent, it's still just a conference game that against an unranked team that hasn't proven that much this year. They've just been playing upset uh, to everyone else in the past. And Clemson is, however, Clemson has been able to cruise the last few weeks, not really having to struggle at all. So they might be a little rusty, I don't know, but they also could be well-rested. So as with any team that hasn't had much competition in a few weeks, it's a double-edged sword. You can either be rusty, or you could have that, that refreshedness to really get at it in this game. So we'll, we'll see what, how Clemson is. I think they'll be ready just from their experience, and I think that's also going to mean why they win this game, because they're more talented, Kelly Bryant should be fine, and they're... they're they're ready. They're mentally ready. They're physically ready coming into this one. So it's another game that's going to be fun to watch. I think all of these games are going to be fun to watch. I don't see why any of them would be bad. Next is the Big Ten, one of with maybe the most playoff implications. It's number eight, Ohio State, and number four, Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is in the top four. Their latest ranking put them barely on the edge. But their ranking prior to this week, being number five and not be, making the top four until... Uh, this week when some teams lost means that if they lose this game, despite being a one-loss Power 5 team, they would probably be out of the playoff. Now, I'm not sure if this is a good decision. Their strength of schedule is weak, but they would still be a one-loss Power 5 team. But nonetheless, just because they're number four now and a loss doesn't mean they'll stay there. Or they would also need help to get in if they lost, such as an Oklahoma loss. Now, as far as Ohio State, this is an interesting case because if another two-loss team gets in, 
besides Auburn, it would probably be Ohio State because of the conference they play in. The Big Ten is incredibly deep, having actually 14 teams, and they have to play nine conference games. And also due to their most recent win versus Michigan, which is going to look good in the eyes of the committee. And they also have div- wins over division opponents like Penn State and Michigan State, who are both ranked, uh, both ranked and are both really good defensive teams. But it would be, still be questionable, and they would need some help just from the fact that they're number eight. Although ESPN College Football Playoff reporter Heather Dinich did say that according to a head member of the committee, the gap between number five Alabama and number eight Ohio State is virtually nothing. But nonetheless, just the fact that they are ranked number eight means they would have to show enough to leapfrog some people. So it's going to be tough for them to get in. They're going to need a win and a lot of help. So let's recap what we talked about with the different games. Uh, the SEC and ACC championship games are probably winner goes to the playoff, loser is not in the playoff. If Oklahoma and Wisconsin, they both have win and in opportunities. So if they win, they're in the playoff. An Oklahoma loss, I think, means Alabama moves up a spot to number four. If Wisconsin loses to Ohio State, I still think Alabama moves up to number five. But an Ohio State team maybe could get in the playoff. I think it's going to be tough because even though putting Auburn at two and ranking a two-loss team for the first time ever in the history of the playoff opens the door for other two-loss teams to get in, it's going to be hard for two two two-loss teams to get in. And Alabama's just sheer dominance up to that Auburn game besides the Mississippi State State game as well, I think they should get in. But Ohio State might leapfrog them in the case of a win over Wisconsin. Now, if Oklahoma and Wisconsin both lose, it's probably going to be Ohio State and Alabama taking those two remaining spots. I don't see another team getting in, like a two-loss Miami team or a uh, two-loss Georgia team getting in. I think Alabama and Ohio State are clearly better than both of them. So, the final ranking show is Sunday at noon Eastern, 9 Pacific on ESPN. Highly recommended watch just because we've been talking about it for the entire year. And you might as well watch it when it happens. So there's that. Now let's get on to the NFL season update. Time to do some rapid-fire-ness. Ready, set, go. In the AFC East, New England's at the top at 9-2. and two. Buffalo's three games back at 6-5. and five. And the New York Jets and Miami Dolphins are 4-7. and seven. New England is pulling away in the division yet again. Now they're three games up on Buffalo. And their offense is really clicking into gear and like that New England offense that we're used to under Belichick and Brady, scoring 41, 33, and 35 in the last three games for an average in the high 30s or mid-30s. The Bills' offense, as they go into third, has really been inconsistent, and that's kind of been their downfall and why they've fallen in the division. And the team has. That's why they've fallen. They do have a big measuring stick game against the Patriots next week, and that's going to be a fun one. And they'll try to carry their momentum in the, into uh, the Patriots game from their big win against the Chiefs, which I think will help them, but only so much when you face this Patriots team that's just been on a roll lately. And the Chiefs have been kind of going in the opposite, opposite direction. It's going to be a big clash in the AFC East. I like this one. In the AFC North, Pittsburgh is on top, followed by Baltimore, Cincinnati, and the 0-11 Cleveland Browns. Now, Pittsburgh has a really complete offense, of course, with Le'Veon Bell and Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown and Martavis Bryant, who started to emerge, and now they have a three-game lead in the division. And I think they're going to end up fighting for the number one seed in the AFC with the New England Patriots. I don't think they're going to get it just from how reliable the Patriots are at doing this type of thing, but I don't know. And also, the Browns might finish 0-16. They have five games left. In the AFC South, which I think is one of the most interesting divisions in football, Tennessee and Jacksonville are tied at 7-4 and four at the top, followed by Houston and then Indy at the bottom, who's four games back. Tennessee and Jacksonville, they've both maintained the division lead with defense, but also poor opponents, just because this division is really, 
not the strongest division in the National Football League. So I think that's part of it. And also Deshaun Watson injury, which sucks because now the Texans are three games back with Tom Savage at the helm. And I don't know if they're going to sign anyone else, but I, I they're, they're done this year. The Texans are, but I like them in the future with Deshaun Watson and Lamar Miller and DeAndre Hopkins finally as a quarterback to throw to him that can provide the deep ball and also be a threat in the run game that opens up more passing lanes for him and running lanes for Lamar Miller. So that's a team, if you were like in a fantasy legacy picking a team league, I would pick the Texans for sure. Now in the AFC West, Kansas City is at 6-5 and five after their 5-0 and oh start. The LA Chargers and Oakland Raiders are one game back, and Denver is at 3-8. and eight. I'm really surprised that the division has opened up. I think everyone is because the Chiefs, as I said, they were 5-0, and oh, and now they're 1-5 and five in their last six with the offense stalling and Kareem Hunt not doing anything and Alex Smith struggling with four INTs in the last three games when he hadn't had any in what seemed like forever. Now, the LA Chargers are the opposite of the Chiefs. They're one game back, only one game back after starting 0-4. That makes them 5-2 and two in their last seven. And Oakland, if only they could have taken this division because they've struggled to really put their offense and defense together, but they have the talent to be almost be up there with the Chiefs. Not quite, but they're a talented team as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if Oakland and Kansas City end up fighting for this division at the end of the year. Moving on to the National Football Conference, I think that's what it's called, the NFC East. Philadelphia 10-1, and one, dang, uh, Dallas at 5-6, and six, Washington at 5-6, and six, and the New York Giants at 2-9. and nine. Unfortunately, benching Eli Manning, I don't really like that. I think you've got to roll with the guy till the end of the year, let him ride off into the sunset a little bit. But Philadelphia is the only 10-win team in the league. Who would have thought we'd ever say that? They, they pretty much have the division wrapped up, so now they can start looking toward that one seed, and they have the best record in the league, so they can really get it. And they dominated Chicago last week, as they really should have at home. But their receiving core will have a tough test next week at Seattle, even though the secondary is banged up. The Legion of Boom is always difficult. Uh, Dallas and Washington are still in the wild card hunt, but they're going to need to get their run games back on track. Dallas is going to have to... I, I think they should rely on Rod Smith more. He's a younger, more dynamic back, and teams haven't really seen him as much as guys like Alfred Morris and Darren McFadden, or I don't know if Darren McFadden is still on the team, but as, as Alfred Morris. So I think they should roll with Rod Smith. And Washington, Samaje Ryan is looking to get some touches. We'll also talk about him later, uh, sneak peek. Anyway, the NFC North, Minnesota's at 9-2, and two, Detroit's at 6-5, and five, Green Bay's one game back of Detroit, and Chicago is three games back of Detroit and six games back of the Vikings. Case Keenum, man, what a guy. He's led the Vikings to the top of their division. It's wide open now without Aaron Rodgers there. And also Latavius Murray is starting to come in his own a little bit, along with uh, Jarek McKinnon. So that dual backfield is nice for them. And also Case Keenum just for some reason deciding to show up in uh, the new system. I think it's because he's having more chances and more wide receivers to throw to like Thielen's had over 150 yards in a couple of games. Anyway, as far as the Packers, unfortunately, for them after the Aaron Rodgers injury, they've struggled. But Brett Hundley had a good game against the Steelers and their season isn't yet over. They still have a chance to get the wild card. I don't think it's out of the picture for them yet. Moving to the NFC South. There are three teams still in the division race, New Orleans, Carolina, and Atlanta, who's one game back of the top two, and Tampa Bay is at 4-7. and seven. I still think the Saints win the division just because of the sheer amount of talent they have on the offensive end and that, that glimpses the, the defense has showed where New Orleans has the backs with Kamara and Ingram, of course, and Drew Brees to throw to both of them. And the Panthers, I think, will also be good down the stretch. Cam, Cam Newton's found a new target in Devin Funchess. I like that. It adds some diversity there to their offense along with their dual backs of the Thunder and Lightning, sort of, of Stewart and McCaffrey, when McCaffrey's having more of a role lately. Um, Atlanta, they're still good. 
Uh, I don't think they're consistent enough to compete with New Orleans and Carolina, but I think we'll see. And finally, the NFC West, where the LA Rams are at eight and three. The Seattle's one game back. Arizona's three, and San Francisco's the second worst record in the league at one and ten. The Rams, wow, they picked up a statement win against New Orleans, who won an eight-game winning streak. They won it with their defense, surprisingly, and Jared Goff had a great passing game with 354 yards, spreading the ball all around. Uh, Cooper Cup had a touchdown. I think Sammy Watkins had a touchdown, even with Robert Woods out. And as far as Seahawks, who sit right behind them, I'm surprised. Well, I'm not surprised. It's just weird that they continue to, to hum along at 7-4, and four, even though they have these occasional struggles just on the, on the strength of Russell Wilson and on the strength of their defense. So that's your NFL season update in Week 12. We'll get back to the marquee games Week 13. And I haven't really decided because I just thought, like, hey, the NFL season is 17 weeks, not 16. So we'll have to decide how we're going to do that. We might just talk about the playoff picture the last couple weeks now that I think about it. So now let's get to the fan questions. The first one, actually we have two questions, both from Evan this week. Uh, What kind of impact fantasy-wise and in real life will Josh Gordon make this season in the NFL? As far as real life, which of course, of course, is the much more important thing. I think we play fantasy and we forget that, but it is a more important thing. I'm still, as much as I would love to just say, look, I love this comeback story, and I do, of course, but I'm still pessimistic on him just because of his history. Uh, I think, I hope, I I mean, it's just like gambling. There's really no seeing what's going to happen here. I think he can get his life back on track. I think he has to a certain extent, and I think he'll he'll have a career in the NFL, but he might get suspended again at some point just because of how much uh, drugs and things have affected him throughout his career and his life. As far as fantasy-wise, I don't think you should start him right away, even though the Browns said he isn't going to have a reduced role in the offense. He's going to be like a standard wide receiver. But I think they already have targets they want to go to there, and Isaiah Crowell starting to run more the last few weeks. So I don't think you should start him right away just because he needs some time to get used to the offense, no matter how good you are. It's like with a guy like Kevin Durant going to Golden State. He's not going to make a humongous impact right away just on his talent. He's going to need time to get into the offense. Like his first practice, I'm sure he didn't do much. So I think he's a good guy you can keep for the rest of the year, especially as the fantasy playoffs come by for a lot of us. So yeah, he's he's worth keeping. Just don't start him this week. Now, should I bench Kareem Hunt for Alex Collins or Samaj P. Ryan says Evan. Oh, we just talked about Kareem Hunt. Uh, normally, in uh, most leagues, I would say no to benching Kareem Hunt just based on his talent, especially in PPR with the uh, receiving yards he's going to get. But I think I like your other options, Alex Collins and Samaj P. Ryan. They're both going to get a lot of touches just based on the way their offenses are structured, where you don't have too many wide receivers in Baltimore or in Washington. You have more in Washington, but less in Baltimore. Uh, I think they're both good options. I like Samaj P. Ryan's floor better just because of the volume he's going to get, being one of the only, or maybe the only running back in Washington. Just the amount he's going to get, he might have more points. Um, if you're willing to risk, if you're going to w- risk a little bit, call. you can bet on Alex Collins' goal line touches, so those could really pay off. Um, I don't know, it's really up to you at the end of the day. So those are the two fan questions. Let's do the quick take. Oh yeah, this will make for a good one. This is a little topic that it'll be interesting to talk about. Uh, John Mara of the New York Giants, the team president, said it's too soon to write the Eli Manning quote obituary, end quote, but quote, tough decisions, end quote, are ahead. Yeah, that makes sense because Eli Manning, if you don't know, he got benched after the Giants' poor performance this year for Geno Smith, the quarterback out of West Virginia. And 
some are saying that it might be his last game, or this last game was his last game in a New York Giants uniform. I, as I said earlier, I don't like the decision just because he's been so good for you for so long. And honestly, even if you put in a new guy, what are you playing for at this point? You're playing for a draft pick. And it, I don't know if you're trying to win at this point or if you just want to see what your new guy's going to give you. But honestly, just put him in and practice. Let Eli, he's won you two Super Bowls and no other quarterback has really done that for you guys lately. So I would just I would have just rolled with him. But either way, for them, um, I think this will be new, uh, Eli Manning's last game in a giant uniform or it was just because of the fact that you don't bench a guy just to restart him after in a few weeks. I think if you, you're showing that you're going toward youth, I think you have to stay with that. But Eli Manning had a great career. I think he won't really have too much more success elsewhere just because the league is going young, going dual threat, going running game with your quarterback, as it has been for years. But great career for Eli Manning, and I wish him all the best. Wow, that sounded a lot like an obituary. Uh, yeah, sorry, I wrote it already. Uh, bye. Uh, thanks for listening to the long takes. Uh, don't forget to send questions on the Patreon patron feed or to our email, which you can do via the website. I've said this a million times. I'm surprised I haven't gotten better at it. Check out the podcast, the website, bit.ly slash the long takes, the Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the long takes. Email the long takes at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the podcast on Google Play. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.